Morning, church. Morning. <clears throat> Growing up every September, my mother would load all of her kids into the car and we would drive up uh, to Lazarus to do our school shopping. That was always a, a big, big deal. And I remember uh, one of those years, probably around 1969 is my best guess, and, and I saw there in the boys' department a Nehru jacket. Those have become quite the rage because the Beatles had started wearing them and they were on the front cover of their new album. And so I was convinced that I needed to have one. I thought, I'm going to be the coolest kid at Athens High School. And my mother, she, she knew better, but after I pestered her for so long, she finally bought it for me and, and I brought it home. I was so excited to wear that the, the first day of school, but couldn't quite put it on. And there it hung in the closet uh, for the next four years, still with the price tag on. Uh, Max Lucada describes a closet in his house that he calls the, the closet of forgotten passions. And in this closet, he has a, a neglected telescope uh, for when he had a passion to study astronomy. He also had a, a stepping stone kit for their garden never opened, and a box of photos that have never been put into albums. Any of you have one of those closets at home? All those things that you thought were going to be such a great idea, but they never got out of the box? I guess there's just two of us today. Huh? <laughs> Three of us, okay. A couple of you are honest. Well, we have been going through the, the history of Israel and looking at the ups and downs of their, of their spiritual life. Again and again, they would be warned that they were heading down the wrong road, but they would never listen. And finally, the nation of, of Babylon, the empire, destroyed Jerusalem and leveled the temple and burned down the, um, uh, all their homes and, and took much of the leadership and the population uh, back to Babylon. And it came to be called the Jewish diaspora. So imagine your, your home is destroyed. The nation is in ruin. All of your hopes and, and dreams crushed. And you find yourself uh, a, a captive in a foreign country. But then you hear of an army that is coming from the east. Who, who is victorious in, in battle after battle. Moving closer and, and closer to, to Babylon. And everybody, every nation is, is trembling before this um, emerging military threat. And Cyrus, the, the general of the Medes and the Persians, known as Cyrus the Great, is coming. And he meets the Babylonian army near Opus. He defeats them. He marches to the city itself. Within two weeks, the empire of Babylon has fallen. And there is a new king. And within a year... Everything changes for the Jewish people. And we read about it in Ezra chapter 1. In the first year of Cyrus, king of Persia, in order to fulfill the word of the Lord spoken by Jeremiah, the Lord moved the heart of Cyrus, king of Persia, to make a proclamation throughout his realm and also to put it into writing. This is what Cyrus, king of Persia, says. The Lord, the God of heaven, has given me all the kingdoms of the earth and has appointed me to build a temple for him at Jerusalem in Judah. 
Any of his people among you may go up to Jerusalem in Judah and build the temple of the Lord, the God of Israel, the God who is in Jerusalem, and may their God be with them. And in any locality where survivors may now be living, the people are to provide them with silver and gold, with goods and livestock, and with freewill offerings for the temple of God in Jerusalem. Verse 5. Then the family heads of Judah and Benjamin and the priests and the Levites, everyone whose heart God had moved, prepared to go up and to build the house of the Lord in Jerusalem. All their neighbors assisted them with articles of silver and gold, with goods and livestock, and with valuable gifts, in addition to all of the freewill offerings. Here's what Ezra is, is trying to show us, that God is in all of this. That God used Babylon and, and God was going to use Cyrus to, to bring about his purposes, his plan. Now to the untrained eye, it merely looks like the rise and, and fall of yet another empire, the results of good planning by a general or the superior forces of a king. But Ezra sees God behind it all. Maybe you heard some of it. The Lord, he says, moved the heart of Cyrus. Everyone whose heart God had moved went up to the house of the Lord. So God is on the move. God is in charge. God has ultimate dominion. God is in control. God is in control of our future. And if you would go forward and if you would read uh, Paul's letter to the Romans chapter 13, you would, you would hear this. Everyone must submit to the governing authorities for there is no authority except that which God has established. That's radical stuff. I mean, we hear those verses and immediately we want to throw up our hands, don't we, and say, wait a minute, we don't have kings and queens anymore. We elect our leaders. We get a choice. We have a say in that. And what makes Paul's words even more disturbing and puzzling is that when he wrote those words, Rome was being ruled by Nero, and Nero was not neutral about Christianity. It was during his rule that many Christians were fed to the lions in the Colosseum. And I believe both Paul and Peter were executed by this demented ruler. So not only does it seem that God works through governments, he works through unjust governments. In fact, throughout the Bible, we find that God was using the authorities that were in place, and oftentimes nobody knew what God was up to. Now this return, this return home, did not catch everybody by surprise. Jeremiah the prophet had actually had a vision of this years earlier, long before Cyrus had arrived on the scene. Jeremiah sent a letter to the exiles in Babylon, and the contents are found in chapter 29 of the book of Jeremiah. This is what the Lord says. When 70 years are completed for Babylon, I will come to you and fulfill my good promise to bring you back to this place. For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord. Plans to prosper you and not harm you. Plans to give you a hope and a what? Future. A future. See, this all seems to be a part of the plan of God. 
And so they make preparations for the 900-mile journey back home. And chapter 2 of Ezra tells us who made the journey. 42,360 to be exact, but who's counting? Well, somebody is. It takes them four months. And imagine the range of emotions as, as they finally arrive home, overgrown fields, neglected roads, demolished homes, and Jerusalem in ruins. And a lot of them are old enough to remember what it used to look like. But for the younger ones who had been born in Babylon, who had never seen home, their, this return to the promised land doesn't look quite so promising. It's a huge challenge, an enormous undertaking. But they begin the process of rebuilding their lives. And led by Joshua the high priest and Zerubbabel the appointed governor, they, they rebuild the altar and they begin the daily sacrifice. And then they lay the foundation of the new temple right exactly where the old temple had been. The Bible says that when the older ones saw it, they cried. The younger ones, they rejoiced. But it doesn't take long before opposition begins to coalesce. You see, the people that were settled by the Assyrians, who become known as the Samaritans, are not happy that 42,000 Jews have returned home. And they do everything they can to intimidate them and, and to cause opposition. And finally, through a letter-writing campaign to the king, the temple work comes to a standstill. Days turn to weeks, weeks turn to months, months turn to years, and nothing is being done. And so God sends two prophets, Haggai and Zechariah, and we know almost nothing about them except what is written down in their two short little books. And it's not much. It's only about two chapters, and it's nothing eloquent. There's nothing deeply inspiring. I mean, when was the last time you quoted from the book of Haggai? Anybody? It's been a while, hasn't it? But what he does is he gives them kind of a kick in the pants, in the second year of King Darius, on the first day of the sixth month, the word of the Lord came to the prophet Haggai, to Zerubbabel, son of Shealtiel, governor of Judah, and to Joshua, son of, of Jozadak, the high priest. And this is what the Lord Almighty says. These people say the time has not yet come to rebuild the Lord's house. Then the word of the Lord came to the prophet Haggai. Is it a time for you yourselves to be living in your nicely paneled homes while this house remains a ruin. What's happened? Other things have taken precedence, mostly like rebuilding their own homes. You see, they, they started off well, but they, but they lost focus. God's big thing has become their little thing. What was a passion when they first arrived has begun to cool off, and now rebuilding the temple is in their forgotten passion closet. It's interesting, too, to notice that, that God is able to turn the heart of a heathen king to bring the Jews home, but he has a hard time getting our hearts in the right place. So he sends a season of difficulty as a wake-up call. Haggai says this. Now this is what the Lord Almighty says. Give careful thought to your ways. You have planted much 
but harvested little. You eat, but you never have enough. You drink, but never have your fill. You put on clothes, but are not warm. You earn wages only to put them in a purse with holes in it. See, Haggai is asking them, have you been wondering why things haven't gone well for you? You've misplaced your priorities. That ever happened in your life? Here's what I discovered, that the thing that gets the most whack out of my life is my calendar. I think the hardest thing that, 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 that God has done is to try to sanctify my schedule. I mean, changing your schedule, my friends, I come to believe, can drastically change your life. It can change your marriage. It can change your children. It can change your spiritual life. Jesus talked about it in Matthew chapter 6, verse 33. You know his words. Seek ye first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and what? All these other things will be added to you as well. You see, we need to get the number one priorities into our schedule, into our calendar first, and then guess what? All the other things will assume their rightful priority. C.S. Lewis wrote this. He said, if we put first things in first, then we get the second things in. But if we put second things first, we lose both the first and the second things. Here's what I hear from, uh, from a lot of you folks. In fact, I, I would say this is most people's lives. This is what they say to me. They say, I'm too busy. I don't have the time. Sometimes, some of us, we even brag about it, don't we? As though to be really busy shows how important, how valuable we must be. It makes me wonder sometimes why we're so hurried and so harried, why we're so rushed and, and frenzied. And then guess what? We, we put our kids on the same crazy schedule. <laughs> In Ephesians 5, verse 16, Paul has something to say about it. He says this, be careful how you walk, not as unwise people, but as wise, making the most of your time, because the days are evil. So then do not be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is. Understand what the will of the Lord is for your life, and you'll be able to figure out your schedule. Other translations say redeeming the time. Redeeming the time or, or making the most of your time. I find a lot of people have, have tried to figure out how to make the most of our time. Uh, Winston Churchill, he would wake up at 7, but he'd spend the whole morning in bed doing his work from, from there. Leonardo da Vinci would, would take two-hour naps 24-7 because he didn't like to spend six or seven hours a whole block of time in, in bed. He thought it was a waste. John Wesley experimented until he found what he thought was the perfect schedule. He'd go to bed at 10, and then he'd wake up at 4 a.m., See, he thought that people needed about six hours of sleep, and he believed to sleep any less than that or any more of that would certainly lead to nervous disorders. He had an entire sermon on the importance of getting up early. It seems that 18th century Englishmen slept in too long, uh, at least as far as Wesley was concerned. In fact, he was pretty sure that if you slept in till 8 or 9 a.m., he was pretty sure you were going to hell. <laughs> At least you were missing a lot of spiritual opportunities. I think in our day and time, we have the opposite problem. A lot of us just not getting enough sleep. 
True? Yeah. You see, the, the bottom line is we need to figure out what God's will is, what his purpose is, what, what God is calling us to do and, and, and to be. You don't have to have a schedule that looks like everybody else. You don't have to go to bed the same time as everybody else, get up the same time. But let me just ask you this question. How is your schedule working for you? Are, are you you find yourself tired all the time? Are you never getting to the essential things? Are you, are you late for everything? Does your family complain that that work always comes first? Do you find it impossible to find time to spend with God? Now, maybe you're thinking this has nothing to do with your spiritual life, but I would disagree. In fact, I would say that a lot of the saints of the church would disagree. The thoughtful arrangement of your calendar is one of the holiest endeavors that you can undertake if you want to change your life. So what if I told you that planning a new schedule can play a, a critical role in determining who you will be as a person, who you will be as a, as a Christ follower, as a family member, and as a friend? Here's what I'm learning. My schedule is far less about what I need to get done and far more about who I need to become. Did you hear that? My schedule is far less about what I need to get done and far more about what I need to become. So how do we do that? Well, a lot of us, we just grab a piece of paper and we start listing uh, where we need to be, where, on what day, so we don't lose our jobs, we don't lose our spouses, we don't lose our children. Most of us, we just start with a list of what we feel we have to get done and we would be in trouble if we forget about it or we neglect it. We have our list of all the have-tos, Right? And we schedule those things first. And we get this whole list together, and then we say, God, help me to pull this off for another month. <laughs> and some of us, we don't even do that much planning. A lot of us, we do things by the, by the seat of our pants as each day comes along, uh, letting other people decide what is important. And we get to the end of the day, and we are frustrated, and we are worn out, and we've been running from one appointment to the next, and we've got no plan for tomorrow. Now, I go to the other extreme. I've always kept a schedule. In fact, uh, my very first schedule, I was in third grade when I had my first planner. <laughs> it's my mother's fault. I, I, I think she potty trained me too early. <laughs> when I was a, a young uh, pastor in my early 30s, I had a friend who took me to a seminar on time management. And I got to tell you, I really didn't want to go. I really didn't see how time management had anything to do with being the pastor of a church. But it changed my life. Because they taught us, first of all, how to establish faith goals and priorities. They challenged us to find out what, what God wanted us to do. And then building our schedule around those goals. Much of how I run my life today started with that time management seminar. And one of the things that I knew God wanted me to do was, was to be a, a, a better father and, and a better husband. See, I had a 10-year-old and a 7-year-old at home, and I was going to church five days a week. I was going to a meeting. If there was a meeting at church, I, I was going to be there. If the lights were on, well, then, then I was heading out the door. If we'd have a birthday party for a family member, as soon as it was over and I had my last bite of cake, I was back over in the office. I mean, I was terrible. Ask my family. They'll tell you. <laughs> and not only was I terrible, but if staff members took time off to be with their families, 
I just thought they lacked commitment, that they weren't dedicated enough to the Lord, or they'd live their life like mine. Something had to change, and so I sat down with my schedule, and I wrote just one word. I, I wrote home, just like I would for any meeting. I wrote home. Four days in the week, I'm going to be home with my family. The other three days, the church can have. And, I, and I'm embarrassed to say that the first time I wrote it out, I actually wrote home or church meeting. <laughs> I, I wanted to give myself a, an, an out, you know, just in case. Finally, I, I crossed that out. I just had home. Because I didn't change overnight. And besides, I had, to teach, I had to teach my church at the time that I wasn't going to show up for every meeting anymore. And not everybody was happy about the change. But I knew if I wanted to be a different kind of person, and if I wanted to be the kind of father and the kind of husband that God wanted me to be, I had to write home in ink. So I think the implications of this can be huge. Instead of asking, what, what do I have to get done in the next 30 days? What if you asked, who do I want to become? Who do I want to become? Melinda and I uh, know this uh, a woman who cleans uh, houses. And she's been doing this for years. She's a wonderful Christian woman. But at the age of 40, she decided that she wanted to do something else. And so she began pursuing her dream of becoming a nurse. And she put nursing classes on her calendar. She told her family and she informed all of her customers that she was going to have to make some changes because of her new class schedule. See, she just couldn't quit her, her, her current job. She had to keep her job and also take her classes. And she did it. She graduated with a 4.0 keeping a job, a full-time job, and, and taking classes at night. But it's changed her life because she wrote nursing class in her schedule. About five years ago, I, I became convinced I needed to spend more time in prayer, but I couldn't figure out how to work into my day. And so I wrote prayer in my calendar at 5.30 in the morning. Now, getting up early was going to be kind of a challenge unless I changed what time I went to bed. So I wrote bed at 10 p.m. in my calendar. <laughs> and if you've got a smartphone, you can actually program your phone. So between 10 and 5.30, you don't get any phone calls or any text messages or any kind of notifications. So you can actually th sleep through the night. You can do that. It's hard. Hard for several months. But you know what? Today it's a habit. Last fall, we had 83 people who put on their schedule, precept, disciple, Bible study. It's a lot of reading. It's a lot of preparation. A lot of folks, they, they can't stay with it. But I can't tell you how many people have come up to me and said, you know what, that Bible study has changed my life. I'm a different person. Well, it changed the people of God. Haggai, chapter 1, verse 12, says this. Then Zerubbabel, son of Shaltiel, Joshua, son of Jozadak, the high priest, and the whole remnant of the people, listen, obeyed the voice of the Lord and the message of the prophet Haggai. Because the Lord, their God, had sent him. And the people feared the Lord. Verse 13. Then Haggai, the Lord's messenger, gave this message of the Lord to the people. Listen, this is what God said to them. Four words. I 
am with you, declares the Lord. So the Lord stirred up the spirit of Zerubbabel, the son of Sheltiel, governor of Judah, and the spirit of Joshua, the son of Jozadak, the high priest, and the spirit of a whole remnant of the people. They came and began to work on the house of the Lord Almighty, their God, on the 24th day of the sixth month. What happened? They put it on their calendar. On the sixth month of the 24th day, we're going to start rebuilding. We're going to move out the, that forgotten stuff out of our passion closet. We're going to start rebuilding the house of the Lord. My friends, what do you need to rebuild? Put it on your calendar. You see, it wasn't that they had intentionally got off track. It's just that the important things, the essential things, had gotten pushed to the side. And it happens to us as well. I love what Haggai says in verse 13. I am with you, declares the Lord. They're not doing this alone. They're not doing this by themselves. God is with them. God is going to help. God is going to provide. What priorities have you misplaced in your life? Is it time for some changes? Maybe your passion for God has cooled off. Maybe God is calling you back to your first love. Maybe you've just been distracted from God's purpose for your life. Maybe, maybe today it's time to return home or at least to begin that journey or at least to begin taking that first step back home. Commit today and make God's big thing your big thing. Let's pray. On the 24th day of the sixth month, God, they put it on their calendar and they began to rebuild. God, we, uh, we confess that sometimes our passions cool off and that we, um, we make your big things little things. God, remind us that we need to seek first the kingdom of God and to seek his righteousness. And all the things that we need will be given as well. Hear this, God, we pray. In Christ's name, amen.